0: But I want to dive into our series today. It's complicated. And the reason I really wanted to start this is I was praying through our series for this fall. I thought to myself, we live in a culture here in America that I feel like we do a, culturally speaking, we put a lot of emphasis on training you for your career and vocation. Would you agree? Some of you are in school right now. You're getting your degree from American or Howard or George Washington or Georgetown, or Montgomery College, or you're at the Uniformed Services University, like you're in the midst of it right now, or maybe you're in an online program, right? And then here's the beauty. Uh, many of you are in these vocations. Once you get into the vocation, you think, wow, thank God I'm done with those nine years. And then they're like, psych, continue education, right? <laughs> and you got to keep getting more education. So that we, are, we are prepared for our careers. And I think that's a great thing. I, I think that's a great thing. We should prepare, we should study, we should be ready for whatever we feel called to vocationally. But if you contrast that with relationships, um, that most states like in our country, if you want to get married, you can just go to the courthouse and get a certificate and they're like, good luck, right? <laughs> like when you have a baby, like the hospital, remember the first time, in fact, today is our oldest Hannah's eight, eight-year birthday, and I remember we, we, we came home. On a side note, anybody else you think birthday should actually be about mom? Anybody else? Just me. I'm like, this is actually mom's day. Like, she did the work. You just entered the world, okay? Sorry. sudden. note. Um, but, uh, but, but when she came in, I remember going home with her and being like, like, so this is it? Like, is there like YouTube tutorials about how do I do this? And is there any books you want to give me, any classes I need to take? and I like, no, let go home. And so that's, you know, of course, and even outside of romantic relationships and parenting relationships, even, even friendships, you know, like maybe you've seen this meme online uh, there. I saw it a few months ago. It said, why does not, why, why does no one talk about the miracle of Jesus having 12 friends in his 30s, <laughs> right? True story. You go through school and college, and you have these, like, environments where you can build friendships, and then you get into adulthood, you're like, what do I do now, right? <laughs> how do I build relationships and friendships? And, and, and here's, here's what makes this even more important, and here's how we're actually kicking off today, talking about how we can develop healthier friendships. Because Cigna Health did a, did a study looking at the The physical health consequence of of a lack of social connections. And here's what they found, that actually three out of five Americans report being lonely. They actually found that 53% of Americans, only 53% report having a meaningful in-person interaction with a friend or a family member on a regular basis. Mind you, this is pre-pandemic. This is before there was, you know, we were at home for a long period of time and, and didn't go anywhere and we were told not to see each other in person. And again, you need to take precaution, but what's kind of come out of this actually, some, some are writing now that we, we actually have a, a, a different type of epidemic that's actually happening because of social isolation and, and the separation that, that, that loneliness has had a significant impact on our mental health and even physical health. So I thought today I wanted to talk about how to, how to friend well. In fact, the title of today's message is friending. And no, I'm not talking about getting a friend request on Facebook. Uh, but but how, how do we actually have healthy, God-honoring friendships? And also be clear, you know, cognitive psychologists say the average person at most can have about five uh, to nine friendships. Like, real close friendships. Like most people, that's the max capacity you can actually handle. So we're not talking about just mere associations. Like how do we cultivate healthy, deep friendships in our life? And we're going to look today, kind of cover some truths around friendships, looking at scripture, as well as some research, and then really dive into uh, scripturally one of the most famous friendships in the Bible. Uh, that we're gonna dive into and, and glean some principles from today. But first, let's pray. Father, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for this moment. We pray that as we open your word, God, that be a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. Uh, we pray, we posture our hearts and minds to receive from you today. In Jesus' name, amen. I think I lost my voice worshiping. Uh, okay, come back. Uh, let me share with you real briefly uh, just three, three basic truths about friendships that are from scripture, but also have some research, uh, some psychosocial research to share about it. And here's the first one, is that actually loneliness and social isolation are dangerous. Proverbs 18:1. whoever isolates himself seeks his own desire, and he breaks out against all sound judgment. It's wise to be alone, unwise to be alone. Uh, former Surgeon General, General, General Vivek Murthy, in 2017, actually declared, that, uh, declared a loneliness epidemic in the United States. This was three years prior to our pandemic. He was declaring back then, we have a loneliness epidemic. In Australia, the UK, and Denmark, they all have national programs sponsored by the government to combat loneliness. That's how significant it is. Dr. Julianne holt Lundsted, a professor of psychology and neuroscience at BYU in 2015, catch this. She's kind of done a lot of research on this topic of loneliness. She found a lack of social connection heightens health risks as much as smoking 15 cigarettes a day or having an alcohol use disorder. She found loneliness is worth, is twice, here, let me get it right because she wrote it, it's twice as harmful as obesity. This is a quote from her. This is, there is robust evidence that social isolation and loneliness significantly increases your risk for premature mortality. But here's the good news, is that friendships are good for your spirit, soul, and body. Proverbs 27, 9, the heartfelt counsel of a friend is as sweet as perfume and incense. The Mayo Clinic found that close friendships boost your happiness, reduce your stress, improve your self-confidence and self-worth, and help you cope with traumas. Harvard Medical School found that social connections influence our long-term health in ways every bit as powerful as adequate sleep, a good diet, and not smoking. Have you ever had a moment where you had a conversation with a friend, and you thought to yourself, like, that was good for the soul? You ever walked away just feeling like, man, that was just good? Like, there's something about what a, what a, what a close, healthy friendship does for you um, that research even points to, and the scripture speaks to. It's so good for us. Uh, Kelly Needham wrote a book called um, Friendish. If you're looking for, I want to dive more into this topic um, it's. It's. Uh, she wrote a great book on just kind of a biblical perspective. But how do really just real practical have healthy friendships? And she said, friendship is an irreplaceable gift from God. Here's the last truth, and then we're gonna dive into our main passage: is that friendships influence the course of our lives. Walk with the wise and become wise, but a companion of fools suffers harm. Proverbs thirteen twenty. You know, I was thinking about this: how much our, and studies have shown. That the habits of your friends influence your own personal habits. If you spend enough time with someone, their habits quickly become your own habits. And I was reminded of this with my son, Judah. He's five years old. And his favorite probably activity, if you were to ask him, um, he loves to wrestle. Uh, that's like his favorite activity. If we have free time, like let's wrestle. And uh, he, one of his friends of his is a quiet, reserved, uh, more reserved young boy. But when when Judah gets around him, it's like WrestleMania 32. Like all of a sudden they're like hitting each other. It's like oh, you know they're like doing all the fake falls, you know, in wrestling. And I go to their parents. I'm like, I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. But I thought to myself, what a depiction. Maybe your friend doesn't do WrestleMania with you, but they influence how we respond, even if we don't realize it. And we see it in kids, but it's true also when it comes to. Our own relationships. Proverbs 12, 26 says, The righteous choose their friends carefully, but the way of the wicked lead them astray. Some of you don't need this. Some of you maybe will find this helpful. But I would just encourage you three qualities. If you look for someone to cultivate a friendship with, here's three simple qualities. And because I'm a preacher, they all start with C. You're welcome. Character, chemistry. If you're a follower of Christ, Christ-centered. Character. You want to have someone who has a sense of integrity. If they say they're going to do something, do they do that? How do they treat people? Especially, look for how people treat others that cannot do anything for them. That's a great sign of someone's character. Chemistry. You want somebody you vibe with, right? Like, you want someone you get along with like, that's why I cannot be friends with a Pittsburgh Steelers fan, because I'm a Baltimore Ravens fan. We can never vibe on this side of heaven. When we get to glory and you see that Christ himself is a Baltimore Ravens fan, then you will bow your knee. Sorry, that's not accurate at all. That is, that is not accurate. Don't believe any of what I just said. That's my personal opinion, and the microphone is on my face. So, But you want someone you kind of you jive with. True story, one of my best friends is a Baltimore Ravens fan that may have influenced it. Uh, And then third is Christ-centered. Is their life centered on Christ? If your friend's habits will influence your habits, you want someone who's going after God and the things of God in your life. So with that said, these are some truths about friendships. I want to look at a friendship in Scripture. Again, there's a a lot of of text about their relationship. Uh, We won't cover all of it, but we're going to cover some of it. Um, is the relationship between Jonathan, King Saul's son, and David. Jonathan and David uh, are a unique relationship, uh, namely because Jonathan was the natural heir to the throne and the king, to be king of Israel, but David was the anointed one chosen by God to be the king of Israel. And in that culture, you would have been sworn enemies with that being the case, but they were quite the opposite. And let me say this off the bat, it's because, and I think we see this in the character and the nature of Jonathan and David, because they were more concerned with advancing the kingdom of God than advancing their own kingdoms. And they, they were focused on, because here's why it's so powerful, from the lineage of Jesus, or from the lineage of David, eventually came Jesus. And they were ultimately knew that through this friendship, I don't, I'm not, not that they knew it at that moment, but I think they knew there was something more than just who's going to be the next king of this country, that, that actually God was doing something greater. We're going to speak more to that in a moment. But I want to start with 1 Samuel chapter 18, and to give context to where we are in the narrative of their relationship. In 1 Samuel 16, uh, if, you, if you're familiar with Scripture, the prophet Samuel comes to David's father's house. Uh, and if you are aware of this, you know, he brings all of his sons before him except for David. David's out in the field with the sheep. But Samuel anoints David to be the next king of Israel. Very unexpected, kind of a plot twist. Uh, and then in 1 Samuel 17, we see when the Israelites were facing the giant Goliath. Some of you remember this from Sunday school. Uh, but, but, but Goliath and, and, and David is literally carrying bread and cheese to the front line to feed his brothers. And he sees Goliath, and he steps up, and he, he slains the giant. Well, after that moment, David's popularity went through the roof. He was trending on Twitter. Uh, his Instagram followers skyrocketed, and, uh, and, and then all of a sudden, Saul's becoming very jealous, angry, and seeks to, to, to take David's life. In 1 Samuel 18, is where we pick it up, and it says this, that David had finished talking with Saul. Jonathan became one in spirit with David. Another translation says he knit his soul together. He loved him as himself. From that day, Saul kept David with him and did not let him return to his family. And Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as himself. I want to share with you three points, three applications from their relationship. We're going to look at 1 Samuel 18, 19, and 20. Here's the first point, uh, is that we need to first love our friends. He loved David as himself. He made a covenant with David. This covenant was part political and part relational. Now, if you're thinking, man, covenant, that's a big, like, I got to make a covenant with my friends? Um, No, the the covenant was very common in the East at that time. And the covenant actually, I shared some a little bit about this earlier, but they they were supposed to be sworn enemies. So this covenant, actually, they pledged their loyalty to one another, their steadfast love for each other in this covenant. Um, Not only that, Jonathan pledged his support to support David and the call of God upon his life. And then here's what was common at that time. So if you were next in line to be king, once you became king, i.e. David, it was common that you would kill off the previous king's family, every one of them, you kill them off because they're a threat to your king, kingship. And that moment, not only did David swore not to do so, but later on in life, because see, Jonathan actually dies. About this time, Jonathan's about 22 years old. Jonathan dies at 31 years old in battle. He has a two-year-old son. Later in life, David accepts Jonathan's son as his own and gives him full right. And that was unheard of. You would not do that. What would have been natural is as soon as Jonathan dies, he would kill his son because that son's a threat to his kingdom. But David wasn't about building his own kingdom. He was focused on something greater. So we see that they have this covenant, this commitment to each other. As I was thinking about this, The level of commitment they had to one another. I was reflecting how we live in a culture today, and this isn't a critical statement at all. This is merely observational, where there is, I would say, commitment is not as much of a priority as it once was culturally, or even at this time. Uh, They see with each succeeding generation is that we're going to switch jobs much more often than the previous generation's. Uh, we see it in in sports teams uh, that, that, and part of it is we have a lot more options now. You know, like what's now even on Netflix, come on, you can get into a season by episode four, you're like, ain't doing it for me, switch to another show. Come on, no commitment. Before <laughs> Netflix, you had to wait a week and you got to keep nothing else on, you know? But you you can, can kind of, you have much more options. Look at sports teams. So I grew up in the era of the greatest of all time, Michael Jordan. That is fact. Um, and, and in that day, come on, anybody else? You, you, were, you were around when MJ? Like, he stayed with the Bulls. Like, he went to the Wizards for a moment, but then he was like, psych. I'm going, <laughs> was a good move. We appreciate it here in Washington, though. Or like Patrick Ewing. Come on. Patrick Ewing was, like, was a Nick. Clyde Drexler. He was a trailblazer. You know, if you don't know these players, look them up. Uh, and, um, but they stayed with their cities and their teams. Like, they didn't, they, they didn't like, now what happens is, like, a, a, an NBA star, if they don't win that season, they try to get their boys together and let's form a super team, i.e. LeBron James, Why he's not the greatest of all time. Because, bro, you can't even win a championship when you put everybody together. That's another thing. See, see, MJ didn't need that. He's like, I got Pippen and Paxton. I'm good. Sorry. Sorry. This is not in the Bible. But it's true. You know it is. LeBron, you can't even do it. No. But what's common is these super teams. That's why last year when Giannis Antetokounmpo won the NBA Finals, You know why it was a big deal? Because he committed to Milwaukee. He said, I'm going to stay in Milwaukee. And you know that's God because what's in Milwaukee? You know what I'm saying? (laughs) If you're from Milwaukee, I'm sorry, but it's just just true. Second service, I get a little bit out of hand. Grace. But his first season with Milwaukee, they were 16 and 67. They, They weren't great because I'm going to stay. So he made headlines and won a championship because he's like, look, I stayed, and it paid off. What's the moral of the story? Here it is. Be honest, not LeBron, okay? You're welcome. You're welcome. We love you, LeBron, if you're watching, but stop playing. There's something to commitment. Here's what Paul said in Romans 12.10 to the Roman church. Be devoted to one another in love. That word love is the word Philadelphia. It means familial love. It means to have this deep connection of of love for each other and commitment to one another. Paul says, "Be devoted," to have a sense of commitment. What's that look like practically? Is just to commit yourself into a relationship. Let me get real practical. Join a community group and stick to it. It might not be great those first few weeks, but stick to it. Who knows? On the other side may be your best friend. Can I tell you, I have seen through community groups in my nine years of pastoral ministry, I have seen people meet their future spouse in a community group, meet their best man or matron of honor, meet their best friends in a community group. If You can stick to it. That's why the Bible says, those who plant themselves in the house of God will flourish in the gates of life. Can I encourage you? Listen, this isn't a like plant yourself in catalyst commercial. You just need to be planted somewhere. If you're a follower of Christ, you need to be in a church and committed to a church. Like saying, Because let me give you practical. It gives this analogy of plant. If you take a plant and you constantly pull a plant out of its pot and repot it, it will never absorb the nutrients and the minerals of the soil. It has to remain planted and deep in the soil. So the reason you may not have experienced the benefits of the community or the relationship is because you pull yourself out too soon you have to stay can I say this I think' there's something highly biblical and I think even say highly beneficial for your life is just decide to stay and I think when you when you do that you'll experience the nutrients and the benefits of the community can I tell you some of my best friends it's just gotten better over the months and years in relationships they grow richer and deeper because you experience the benefits so make the decision I'm going to commit my self. And I wasn't always like that. I'll be honest. I would quickly kind of move around in relationships, but I found the benefit of committing yourself, of planting yourself. And then, then, then what happens next is Jonathan takes off his royal robe. He gives it to David along with his tunic and his sword and his belt. Now, in the Eastern culture, this was considered the highest honor to give someone your royal robe. Jonathan was saying, David, you are the next king. I give you this. He gave him his military tool saying, you're the next leader of our military. He was honoring David. and As I said, David honored him by treating Jonathan's son as his own. There was a mutual honor, a mutual valuing for one another. It reminds me of Romans 12, 10 that says, honor one another above yourselves. The word honor means to esteem, to respect, to value, to value each other. Jesus was the greatest example of this. In 1 John three eighteen, John records this. This is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay our lives down for our brothers and sisters. To lay your life down to honor. You know, with it being football season, you will, get lo- you will, you will hear a lot of football analogies. I'm sorry, but I'm not sorry. And um, one of my favorite things to watch in football, you rarely see it. But uh, I love it when a quarterback, when they hand the ball off to a running back or they pass to a receiver, and they go down the field and they block. You ever seen this? And because they're smaller with the linemen or the linebackers, they're like just kind of throw their body into them. <laughs> and, and when that happens, the offense goes crazy because they're like, oh, you're a real one. Like the other ones are playing. Like you, real, like you put your body, you laid your body down for us. And I thought, again, this whole idea of laying your life down, serving, what does it look like to honor your friends? It looks like you valuing them and their time. It looks like you being for there for them in time of need. It looks like you encouraging them in their calling, perhaps even investing in their dream, like what God's called them to. You showing honor, value, respect, esteem for them, to love your friends. So in 1 Samuel 18, what happens is David's popularity begins to increase more and more. And and Saul's anger increases all the more. And it says this, Saul then told Jonathan, 1 Samuel 19, verse 1, and all the attendants to kill David. But Jonathan had been taken a great liking to David. And he warned him, my father Saul is looking for a chance to kill you. Be on your guard tomorrow morning. Go into hiding and stay there. I will go out and stand with my father in the field where you are. I will speak to him about you, and I will tell you what I find out. What did Jonathan do right there for David? Jonathan was looking out for David. That's the second point, is look out for your friends. He, he was he was looking out for David and saying, "Listen, my father is trying to kill you. I'm going to look out for you." What was David doing? He or Jonathan doing? He was watching David's blind side. Again, I told you we'll get football analogies, but you know a quarterback has a blind side. In fact, Tom Brady, we were all praying he retires in Jesus' name after this year. I heard the other day he's going to play till he's fifty. I had to rebuke the devil. I was like, "That ain't true. That ain't true." Don't do it to us. We can't. We can't afford it. He can't have three careers in one. That's ridiculous. But he's, he's uh, Tom, if you're watching, we love you. Just <laughs> retire. There's so many things you could do. You're a very talented man. But his, his, his blind side, and any, any team, the highest paid offensive lineman will be the, the, the guard that guards the blind side. So in his case, it's his left guard. Usually, they'll recruit left guards in elementary school. Because they look for the size. Usually, they're like six foot nine, and they have the capacity to be about three hundred eighty pounds, because they need to be like be able to push a wall back, and that's what they do. Why? Because if a quarterback gets hit in their blind side, they'll lose the ball, they could get injured. Worse, so they they invest in that. Now let me break it down for us. You have a blind side. I have a blind side. Blind sides are those aspects of your life, those tendencies you have, those patterns of your life that can sometimes be hurtful or destructive or not helpful. Here's what it can look like. It can look like sometimes that anxiety and fear can eat your lunch and you can begin to make fear-based decisions. It can look like you can maybe perhaps overextend yourself sometimes. You overcommit yourself to things. You're the person that signs up for nine groups, and then you're like, I'm just not going to any of them. Uh, in all transparency, I'm an overcommitter. I'll extend myself too much. Like, with a good heart, I'll just, I'll just say yes to too many things. So, I need to have people to guard my blind side. It can look like a sin pattern in your life, that habitual pattern that kind of continues to, to get in your way. It can look like anger getting the best of you. We all have. A blind side. Maybe for you, it's relationships. Maybe you get so, so kind of enamored with someone, you make these feelings-based decisions that end up being the wrong decisions in relationships. And you need someone to watch your blind side. And here's what it can look like. I had a friend call me several months ago. And, and just this is also, <laughs> I, I think when you begin to recognize your blind side, it's also a sign of maturity and emotional health because you're recognizing, I need other people in my life. And, and listen, we all have blindsides, and we all need people to cover our blindsides. Let me also say this. Invite that person in your life. Give them that privilege. Also, on the side note, don't be someone who just goes up to random people calling out their blindside, okay? That won't go well. Be invited in. Even if you see it, be invited in. But he called me, and he, and he said, hey, Can I get your feedback if I have the the right perspective? He shared with me a decision that he made at work, and he said, I want to make sure I am not making a fear-based decision based upon a previous experience in another workplace. What was he saying? Hey, listen, he processed the entire situation with me and said, now, did I I make the right decision? That's what it looks like to have someone cover your blind side. Somebody to be vulnerable with and say, hey, listen, man, I might have got it wrong sometimes I'm left to myself, I'm not good for myself, and that takes a lot of maturity and health, and can I, can you hear this lovingly and pastorally, you have a blind side, whether or not you realize it, and if, (laughs) do this today, if you're married, ask your spouse what it is, I know they know, (laughs) Christina knows my blind side, if you're not married, ask your roommate. Ask your best friend. Ask the coworker who knows you really well. I guarantee you they might tell you one or 15 things. <laughs> we have blind sides. So have someone who can cover you. But then we see David counsels him. And we see this throughout David's, uh, John, Jonathan's counsels him. We see it throughout their relationship. In like fact, Jonathan says this in 1 uh, Samuel 23, 16. What says Saul's son, Jonathan, went to David at Horish, and he gave him strength in God. He goes on to encourage David and to give counsel to David. You need people in your life like Jonathan who will encourage you when you are down. David was very down in this moment. Saul had been chasing after him. It's like David got this anointing to be king, and then not only did he not see progress, it was like regression. It's like now the current king is trying to kill me, and Jonathan goes in a time of need to encourage him. You will have moments, and maybe you have had moments, where you are discouraged, And sometimes you need a friend to call you to say, this is the call of God upon your life. That dream God's put in your heart, that's real. I know you may not see it yet, but it's coming. Someone to encourage you in God, remind you of what God's word says about your life, to say, hey, listen, I know you had a rough day, a rough week, a rough year. Let me pray with you. Let me encourage you. Let me remind you of who you are in Christ. Can I tell you there's moments that I have friends come around like that? I am so grateful for them because sometimes you can't encourage yourself. Let me also encourage you on the flip side. Be that for your friends. If you think of something encouraging to say, say it. Text it. Message them. Hey, I was thinking about you. I was thinking about that conversation we had, that dream in your heart. Man, I just sense that's God. I was praying for you this morning. You will never know what that will do for your friend by simply doing that. Romans 15, 14, Paul says to the Roman church, I myself am convinced, brothers and sisters, that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with knowledge, and competent to instruct one another. In other words, you are are competent enough to counsel each other. Listen, messages are fantastic. We we, we should sit under preaching and teaching. Books are great. I'm a book nerd myself. But can I tell you, those are great. You should have those in your life. But you should also have someone in your life that you receive counsel from. They know you. They know what's going on in your life. And they can speak a word of counsel or instruction into your life. Proverbs 27.5 says this. Better is an open rebuke than hidden love. Wounds from a friend can be trusted. But an enemy multiplies kisses. The proverb says, "Be, be mindful of the person who only, who, who's close to you, and they only ever affirm you—that's an enemy multiplying kisses. The one, one translation says, "Faithful are the wounds of a friend." I was reminded as I was thinking about this. I, I know in our culture, it's unpopular to be corrected. Uh, but can I just say this out of again, pastoral love and compassion? We all need someone in our life who can speak the truth in love to our life. Who can offer some course correction in love? But we need that. Remember some years ago, Christina and I met with a marriage mentor, this couple, and we had a, we were new in marriage, and we I was making all kinds of mistakes. And they gave us some counsel and it was the, the big issue that came up was when we would have a disagreement, um, I'm an internal processor, and she's an external processor. So she wants to talk about it right now. Like, let's have the conversation, solve it right now. I'm like, I need a moment to just even think and, like, process what I'm going to say. And uh, so, so anyways, so I'm, I'm walking outside after the meeting, and the gentleman, the husband, who was, uh, they were mentoring us he said to me, he said, hey, Jeremy, and I thought, man, he's gonna like, you know, just encourage me, like, hey, I I just encourage you for even seeking some counsel, you know, such a great husband, great man of God. He said, Jeremy, you're dishonoring your wife. I said, first I was like, who are you (laughs) to talk to me? I'm a great husband. He said, "When, when you have a disagreement, your, the way Christina's wired, she needs to know when you'll have the conversation. You don't have to have it right there, but she needs to know when. And you just kick the can down the road. Can I tell you, it was not enjoyable in the moment, but it's been fruitful over years. And he's followed up with me. He's been like, hey, how's that going? Like, like, and honestly, that's what love looks like. Now, he encourages me. He he encourages my call. He believes in me. I mean, he will just affirm me, but he'll also correct me. I'm grateful for it. Here's what I have found. I feel affirmed by people's encouragement, but my life is changed when I'm corrected. Can please hear this pastorally and lovingly? You need to be corrected by someone. I'm not saying in a childish way, or p- I'm saying out of love. Some say, I love you enough for you not to make that mistake again. I love you enough to save you from yourself. And I'm telling you, if you allow someone this liberty in your life, and again, you can't get it from a message or a book, it's someone in your life. I'm telling you, I've experienced this. You'll experience life change from it. It's one of the best things that we can do for our life. So 1 Samuel 19, they have this moment where where Jonathan's covering. He's looking out for David. He's speaking words of counsel. He's encouraging David. We've seen that, that Jonathan loves David as we should love our friends. He looks out for David as we should look out for our friends. Then in 1 Samuel 20, this is towards the end of their relationship, one of their last interactions actually. It says this in verse 41, David got up from the south side of the stone and bowed down before Jonathan three times. With his face to the ground, they kissed each other and wept together. But David wept the most. Jonathan said to David, go in peace for we have a sworn friendship with each other in the name of the Lord saying, the Lord is witness between you and me and between your descendants and descendants forever. Then David left and Jonathan went back in town. So David bows down three times to show honor to to Jonathan. Then they weep together. And they kiss each other. Now, in our Western culture, especially when it comes, I'm not painting a broad stroke, but a lot of times with 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 men and male culture, this can feel uncomfortable. There's a degree of closeness. Their closeness was like what we call family, <laughs> friends like family. In the same way as a family has healthy physical affection. And and there's 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 even with my son, I'll kiss my son on the head there was this healthy affection between them both. And can I tell you, you need someone in your life that you can weep with, that you can rest your head on when you can't even hold yourself up. We all have those moments. And you know what's intriguing? Again, this pandemic, one of the, the phrases I was, as I was researching for this message that's come up is, is some uh, psychologist, neuropsychologist even medical doctors are concerned about what they're calling tub touch deprivation. It's because we were told for for so long, like don't don't touch anyone, because you know. Uh, remember when back in the day we had to like scrub your groceries down and wipe down boxes. Remember those days? Eight years ago, um, <laughs> feels like eight years ago sometimes. Beginning of twenty twenty. And listen, I'm not, I'm not making light of precautions that we should take because we should take precautions, but I'm also speaking to what there are now, what's arising is this idea of tup, t- touch deprivation. They've actually found that actually without a lack of healthy physical touch and affection, it releases cortisol in your body, which suppresses your immune system. It actually makes you more susceptible to getting ill. They did a study, it was uh, the university, the Car- Carnegie Mellon University in 20- 2004, they injected two groups of people with a cold virus. They injected them with it. And then what happened was they looked at those who um, received physical affection, specifically hugs, and those who did not receive an appropriate amount of physical affection. Here's what they found. Those who receive more hugs are more protected from affection and illness-related symptoms. Hugs strengthen the immune system. University of North Carolina and Chapel Hill did a study. They found that actually um, this study was particularly focused on women. Women who received more hugs had lower heart rates and blood pressure. Hugs strengthen the immune system because they stimulate the thymus gland, which increases the body's production of white blood cells to keep you healthy and disease-free. Come on, just hug somebody right now. We need touch. We need affection. We need to be vulnerable with people. It's healthy. Paul said this to the Corinthian church. We have spoken freely to you, Corinthians, and opened wide our hearts to you. He's reflecting his love for them. We are not withholding our affection from you, but you are withholding yours from us. As a fair exchange, I speak to you as my children. Paul had a, had a role of leadership in their life. Open wide your hearts also. Now, I know that I'm speaking in the room right now to some people, and, and I, I was like this in one season of my life, where you have been Emotionally wounded by someone. Maybe for you it was a parent who walked out on you. Maybe it was a boss or a teacher who spoke harsh words to you. Maybe it was an ex who mistreated you. Maybe it was a friend who disappointed you. Maybe it was a church leader who wronged you. And here's what can happen if we're not careful. And this was a part of my life as an adult. Is I had a wall up in my life. And I would lower it a certain amount, but I wouldn't let anybody fully in. I wouldn't let anybody really know everything about Jeremy. Can I speak to one danger when you live like that? We like to say here at Catalyst Church, you need someone in your life to take the mask off with. And if you never completely take off the mask, you can actually deceive yourself believing you are the mask. You can become completely unaware of actually the wounding you've experienced, and that you need to allow God, which a lot of times is through people, through healthy friendships, and sometimes through a therapist, to allow you to experience healing in your heart. And I say this out of compassion and love pastorally, because I've experienced this, but do not allow a past wounding to prevent you from future healing. Because the scripture says this in James five sixteen, when you confess your sin, when you open yourself up, when you lower the wall with somebody else, you experience healing in your heart. God's will is that you'd experience healing. Now, I have compassion and empathy because I have been where you are if that's you. And I know you can't just turn it off like that. But can I encourage you with a practical? Ask God to heal your heart. Have a moment with God. Cast your anxieties upon him, your cares upon him. And maybe ask God, God, is there anybody that I need to forgive? Here's how you know you may not have fully forgiven someone. You are still expecting them to reconcile or remediate the situation. Forgiveness is you release them of all obligation. I'm not saying that all of a sudden you're best friends with them, but you release them. And then ask God to give you the courage to trust again, because I'm telling you, it's powerful. Proverbs 28, 13, my last scripture, people who conceal their sins will not prosper. People who keep their walls up will not prosper. But if they confess and turn from them, they will receive mercy. I don't know if I shared this point, but it's to let your guard down with your friends. This proverb says that we need to be able to let our guard down, to lower the wall, to take off the mask with somebody else. We can receive mercy and healing, and we can actually be prospered, which is experience a pushing for an empowerment by God's spirit when we open ourselves up. You know as I was watching football last week, um, I noticed in kind of thinking about this message, the players, when they go to the sidelines, Oftentimes, even if it's for like two downs or three downs, they'll take off their helmet. And sometimes, especially in the south where it's really hot, they'll go to the side, they have oxygen tanks and they'll put the oxygen on their mouth ma- on their mouth to breathe it in. Especially linemen. They're like out of breath and need to like oxygen again. Because so I did some research, I found that even the most advanced football helmets restrict airflow. So every few downs, like I need to take this off. I need to. I need to breathe. I thought to myself, in the same way, physically, they need to take the helmet off to breathe. Emotionally and spiritually, you need to take the mask off with someone to breathe again. Breathe again. And listen, in a community group here at Catalyst, yes, you'll, you'll dive into a, a great Bible study or a book study, And our leaders are ready to lead you and help you grow in your faith. And I think that's great. You're going to try some new hiking trails, the hike groups, some new restaurants, the dinner groups, which are are great. But I can tell you the primary purpose for community groups here at Catalyst, the number one reason, because culturally three out of five people feel like no one really knows the real them, is that you can find someone to take the mask off with. So here's the tension that I've been having in my marriage for seven months. Here's the addiction I've struggled with for three years. Here's the sin pattern that I've, I've tried to get, and I can't. You can tell somebody the anxiety that's kept you up for four weeks. To have a safe place where you can breathe again. And can I tell you, that's where healing happens. The Spirit of God moves in those moments. Yes, we should open up with God, but we need to open up with each other so we can experience the healing that comes from that. So if there's one thing I want to encourage you with to do, I believe it's important that we we not just hear the word, we put it into practice, is to, whether it's through a community group, maybe through an existing relationship, is, is to, and maybe you're not ready tomorrow or this week, but to start building into... Build your way towards this is to have a relationship where you can take the mask off with. And listen, if you already have that and you've already done that, let me encourage you keep doing that. Also, be a person that is safe enough to say, Hey, you can take your mask off with me. This won't go any further than me and you. Hey, can I pray for you? Hey, can I encourage you? And can I tell you, I am believing, church, in Jesus' name, this fall that we're going to experience more healing emotionally and spiritually than ever before as we let our guards down. Let's develop some healthy relationships.